Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hi, I'm Gareth, a composer for TV and an audio producer for podcasts like this. Like many others, I was lucky enough to have a positive music education. I'm extremely grateful that all that support led me to what I do today. For me, the music room was that place growing up where all the musos gathered like moths to a flame. A place to be with other creative-minded people. So let's go back there and spend some time in gratitude for all the people who've helped us get started. Welcome to the music room. This week in the music room. Had a, like a whole school choir, a chamber choir, a wind band, an orchestra, a string orchestra. Wow, in, in the primary t- school. In a primary school. Hello and welcome to the music room, the show where composers, songwriters and musicians take us back in time to their musical beginnings. In this episode, you're going to hear from the amazing Daisy Cool, one half of the composing duo 222 Music with partner Tom Nettleship, about what she's up to now. And of course, we'll be going back in time to find out all about Daisy's formative years and the people who inspired her. And hang around because later on, Daisy will be leaving in the music room an item that helped her back then and a piece of advice which may, of course, help you. This is the section of the podcast where I read out your stories and memories of starting out in music. By the way, if you'd like to send me your story or memory, please do. You can send it to the email hello at thesoundboutique.com if it's text, and via the link in the show notes if you'd like to send a voice note. Folks featured in this section will get a link to their website in the show notes, as well as going into the Sound Boutique monthly newsletter, which you can subscribe to. Guess where? That's right, the link is in the show notes. This episode's music story comes from media composer Jim Hustwit. I love this from Jim's website. In 2005, I helped get The Crazy Frog to number one in the UK charts. Thanks, Jim. I subsequently quit an illustrious marketing career in order to make reparations for crimes against music. LARP music was born. Well, not quite that bad, Jim, honestly. Here we go then. Are we sitting comfortably? My musical journey began while sitting cross-legged in a school assembly when a girl got up and played the Wombles of Wimbledon on the clarinet. I went home that evening and told my mum that I wanted to be able to do the same. We couldn't afford a clarinet at the time, so my granddad bought me one. Subsequently, it would be my grandma that bought me my first saxophone and acoustic guitar, so my family were always very supportive. I had a natural affinity for music which they felt should be nurtured. My clarinet teacher was Rachel Platt, and she was a massive inspiration and motivation. At the age of 14, I was ready to quit the clarinet because it wasn't cool, but Rachel encouraged me to swap it for the saxophone with the promise of increased street cred and that the sax, I'm I'm doing air quotes now, the sax players got all the girls, in brackets, not true. She also recognised that I didn't really enjoy reading music, so would get me jam tapes and we'd often spend lessons improvising. As I seemed to pull away from music, it was Rachel and my mum who pushed me back. 
at the time, their encouragement sometimes bordered on harassment, but without it, I may not be where I am today. Four years after leaving school, I went back to see Rachel to catch up. I told her about my imminent trip to Frankfurt, where I'd be working in an investment bank, at which she expressed disappointment. I think she felt it was a waste of my creative and musical talent. That moment stuck with me, and at the age of 30, I quit everything to pursue music full-time. The power of a good teacher is that they impact people's lives in ways they may never truly know. Thank you, Jim. That last sentence there is everything, isn't it? The link to Jim's website is in the show notes and will be included in next month's Sound Boutique newsletter. Saxophonist Daisy Cool, along with the guitarist Tom Nettleship, co-founded music and post-production sound company 222 in 2014 and have been writing music professionally ever since. Daisy is also a board member for the Alliance for Women Film Composers and regularly hosts and speaks on panels for organisations including the AWFC and to me has always been so supportive of her peers as well as people trying to break into the music industry. Let's catch up with Daisy now and let her take us back in time to find out about her musical beginnings. Daisy Cool, welcome to the Music Room. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. You're very, very welcome. As I've mentioned before on another podcast that I've done, you have one of the finest names in the business. I can take no credit for it, but thank you very much. Well, it's almost like a stage name, isn't it? But that is your real name. So you heard it here, folks. So, Daisy, you are a film composer, a lecturer, a board member of the Alliance for Women Film Composers, member of BAFTA. You hold workshops for things like improving your network as a composer. You're always being supportive to fellow composers on social media. Your day-to-day routine must just be finely honed to, to fit everything in. How do you do it? I mean, you'd hope it would be finely honed, but I'll be honest, I've spent about, I don't know, six months trying to work out a routine and it's not going so well so far. Yeah, I can't not accept things, apparently. So, um, you know, when I get opportunity to do workshops and um, share what I've learned, I just, I feel like I have to. I have I have a weird moral obligation to kind of empower other people, which I've sounds very, you know, uppity, but it's just something I've noticed about myself through teaching. It's absolutely my go-to and it's, come into composing in the same way I just from from doing because I also do woodwind teaching and I'm um, music director at a Saturday music school as well so I organize concerts and workshops and events so whether you know they're four years old or they're a 30 something composer I kind of have the same attitude which is if I know even one little thing I feel like I should share it yeah because why not it's really nice and the fact that you are teaching is very interesting to me for the, the subject of this show. So maybe we can come into that when we go back in time. You and your marvellous partner in crime, Tom Nettleship, have composed the music for loads of films, haven't you? I mean, there's always yeah, something we, going on. Yeah, we've been doing it for a while. Um, we've actually had a really interesting year where we've really jumped around. I mean, it tends to happen anyway, but like last last summer we were working on a Finnish British uh Copro, which was like a psychological horror, which is really interesting. So I was working with uh, a folk musician called Anna Tam, who has all these weird and wonderful instruments, including uh, a nickel harper and <laughs> a yohiko. She borrowed a yohiko, which she now owns, from a druid. She borrowed one from a druid, which I think is just amazing. 
like my favourite fact about it. How do you it. go about searching for <laughs> something like it's that? It's just the network that she's in. You know, we have a composer <laughs> network. She works with Druids. I don't know. Brilliant. Um, but she's fantastic. And we did a lot of sort of vocal work with her as well and then built up this kind of sound world of all these really interesting instruments. And she actually works with a lot of games composers as well. So she's really... Uh. Uh, she's really fabulous and creative and inspiring. So we went from that into a short musical, which was just brilliant, working with a director called Abby Lucas, who we worked with a lot. So that was sort of very uh, 40s, 50s style. So polar opposites. Yeah. Then, then what did we go into? We did some media stuff. And then in, we'd just done a sort of a weird drama. One of those short films that's like a kitchen kitchen sink drama with a twist it kind of feels like but we basically borrowed a violin and decided oh, i saw photos just, on your instagram <laughs> let's see how many sounds we can get out of the violin <laughs> turns out it's quite a hard instrument i'm a woodwind yeah. player tom's um rhythm section so we have literally no strings chops whatsoever <laughs> so luckily we have friends that actually play really well uh, but that was really fun and now we're just into a u.s series it's like a, a gay family drama and that's what we're working on right now so just entirely opposite worlds through all of them and that's exactly how we like it did i see a trailer for that recently for, for your, which one for your, the I, I heard something it was yeah a little bit swing um, anyway. oh that yes that might have been the musical that oh, was probably okay. the musical yeah, right. yeah yeah so it opens with this fantastic sort of 40s musical overture throwback brilliant and goes through and then we had to write a song and orchestrate that for big band and strings which was amazing so we got some horn players in it was very exciting and then it ends with a sort of entirely different style of music also still using horns but entirely different style that sounds very exciting yeah so that would have been the trailer that you saw <laughs> brilliant like i said music education clearly continues to be important to you so if you're ready why don't we go back in time? I can only apologise. <laughs> I love it. Brilliant. <laughs> so, Daisy, what are your earliest memories of music? I've been thinking about this because I've been asked this a few times recently. And my earliest memories of music are related to dancing. So I started dancing when I was about four years old. And I was absolutely obsessed. And we had this sort of old hi-fi stereo system in our living room and I would either put on ballet music which is probably probably Swan Lake I would imagine I think um and then the other one that I remember was Rock Around the Clock you remember that and, and and there was another old school rock and roll song that I can't remember what it was but I would just dance around the living room and that was all about the music for me like I remember especially with the Swan Lake stuff it wasn't just sort of indiscriminate twirling I really remember the sort of the, the ups and downs of the music, of the phrasing and of the strings and just being really aware of that. And although I started, so I would have started learning music probably in maybe I was like seven. I think I was given a recorder and it was really, I think it was the dancing that hooked me to the music. That's interesting. So movement and rhythm, but also like you say, recognising the phrases in the music. Yeah. So it was it was physically I mean exactly what dancing is, it was physically following the music. And obviously when you're when you're little, you have no clue what you're doing. Yeah. So you're more attuned, I think. Because you're thinking less about yourself, maybe. Maybe it's less of the ego, you're more attuned to following the phrases without knowing that that's what you're doing. 
So you say it was around seven that that kind of flipped into actually playing. I would, you know, I was really lucky. I went to a very small primary school in North London, sort of a one form entry. So 30 kids per class. It's called Fitzjohn's Primary School. And they had the most incredible music, just a state school but they had the most incredible music. So when you were seven, so year two, you got given a recorder, everyone played recorder. And then in year, uh, it would be year three. So the year that you turn eight, everyone got to choose an instrument. So like flute, clarinet, trumpet, trombone, strings, whatever. And I chose flute. And then they had a, like a whole school choir, a chamber choir, a wind band, an orchestra, a string orchestra. Wow, in, in the primary t- school? In a primary school. And one form entry primary school at that. Amazing. It was amazing. And the, the director of music was a guy called David Joyner, who also taught singing at Guildhall. And he would say, give them the challenge and they will meet it. Even if we were seven or eight years old. That was his whole opinion about music education. So he would, you know, we'd be singing West Side Story. We'd be singing Burt Bacharach. We'd be singing Mozart. I remember a, a spending ages trying to sing pa 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 gamer and going around my living room trying to practice doing that because we had to do it. Or doing a choir, a choir rehearsal where we had to sing Lullaby of Birdland. And you get that phrase like Lullaby of Birdland, which goes down in the scale. And every single person in the chamber choir had to sing it on their own because everyone was going flat. So he was teaching us oh, how to sing properly. And I think we were like 10. You know, um, and I'm I'm not a very good singer. I I can I'm musical, so I can pitch really well, but I don't have like a fabulous style or anything. So I was always that person that was like stand next to the really good person and help them with the part, the inner parts, because that's what I was good at. But they had the better voice. But that all came from primary school. I was just wow. I feel so incredibly lucky that I was taught at so young an age not to be afraid of hard music and not just taught children's music, but taught a huge variety of music Mm. it's being around it and living it as well and not kind of deciding i'm going to commit to lessons or or something it was just part of your everyday life it it absolutely was it it was the ethos of the school so this would have been the early 90s and this was the time around sort of 90 91 92 the government cut all the funding for all things outside the national curriculum they seem to do that every so often don't they it's, yeah, they're very helpful in that way. Yeah. And so they had all class, all, all music was free. And then the government cut the funding. So they they went from like, I don't know, 20 or 30,000 a year to 2,000 a year, something like that. So they had all these, all these children on free music lessons and suddenly didn't have any money. And they decided to put on this amazing music festival. And they ended up doing two of them. And I actually found the programs recently because someone sent me them. <laughs> and the first one was a 24-hour music festival, <laughs> sort of in various sort of stages in the playground or in the rooms. Wow. And the second one was a whole weekend. It was a two-day music festival. And it had patrons like Sir Simon Rattle and Jackie Dankworth and John Dankworth. And I was looking through the players and it's like Ackerbilk, Stephen Isselis, uh, who else was there? Barrington Feelong, like all of these amazing Great. people who were like who were up in arms that music education was being cut and came to this tiny mm. primary school to play a little set to help us raise. I think we ended up raising about twenty grand wow. to cover the music lessons. And I just I remember it so clearly, although obviously I didn't know who any what a lot of these people were. But that that is a symbol of 
what the school was. It was that important that people would rally round and make sure that everyone had access to music. Well, if that hasn't rubbed off, I don't know <laughs> what will. Yeah, that's amazing. So moving on then, moving schools, clearly you can't keep up that kind of uh, atmosphere in a, in a massive school, can you? What kind of school did you go to? Uh, I went to a state secondary school. It's like an eight form entry, so it's about 2,000 kids, maybe. So it's huge. It must have been a shock to the system. It was <laughs> huge. It was absolutely massive. And the year that I started, a new music teacher came in. And again, I think I got really lucky because it's a huge, very, very mixed state secondary school right next to a like, pretty rough estate. So right on the borders of Camden and Brent. And there was this wonderful teacher there called Kate Hannon, who is a really good friend of mine now. She's like 23 or something. She's just come out of um, training. And she started a jazz band at school. And I had decided that I wanted to play the saxophone when I was 11 because I saw a boy playing, I think played Misty in a school assembly. And I was like, mum, I want to play the saxophone. So I taught myself for like the first year and then was like, I should probably learn how to do this properly. So I sort of played not very good saxophone, but I was pretty decent on flute. And she started this jazz band and she was like, do you know what? We've got a lot of flute players and a lot of saxophone players, but how do you feel about playing tenor sax? I was like, sure, why not? And they you know, dug me one out from the, the school to try it out. And then my mum went and got like a cheap secondhand one. And that was kind of it. You wow. know, I was a tennis sax player. Didn't want to go back to the flute or anything like that? Well, I, I carried on playing it, but something about the tenor really made sense for me. Yeah. To, I think it's yeah. just an instinct thing. It resonated, if you... Excuse the yeah. musical kind of <laughs> And even now, there. like I, I play I play all of the saxes, but every time I play tenor, uh, it feels like I'm coming home. Oh, lovely. Whereas yeah. I teach on alto a lot because most students play alto. And just switching back to tenor is just like it's like a whole body relaxation. Like this is comfortable. This is this yeah. is where I belong. Yeah, fantastic. So so far you've got someone in your primary school who was kind of key to your falling in love with music you've got someone in your secondary that is a that's a lucky thing not everybody has that I'm so, what, so lucky. what happened then I'm, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> this is like <laughs> what happened next in the journey and the story well, I mean honestly this whole thing is all luck it, it's mm. um it's all just being in a community that values music yeah and so much of what I do now is because of them w was it all based in school um, were there other groups around your community that were of use? Great question. So it was in the uh, London Borough of Camden. Mm. And the Camden Music Service were very early days then. So they just had a youth orchestra. And in my second year of school, they decided to start up a jazz band with that same teacher, Kate. So they were like, Kate, would you like to just start a jazz band? She was like, sure. <laughs> and... That was uh, the Camden Youth Jazz Band that's still going now that I coach saxophones for now, which I absolutely love. It's probably one of my favourite jobs. Because um, now they're all sort of 17 and 18 year olds. So you just get to talk about music and jazz and who they should be listening to and that kind of thing. But yeah, so I was doing that and then I was a concert band. It's like a concert band. And now the Camden Music Service is huge. But in the early days, it was just those three groups. And they ended up putting on a festival at 
the Royal Albert Hall, uh, sort of a music school, uh, uh, music in schools festival in Camden, which is quite popular now with lots of boroughs, I think. But I mean, this is 1998, maybe. And I had, <laughs> I had written a, what I will say was a dreadful cheesy song, but Tom tells me off when I say that. But I'd written a song and I'd played it at school. I was playing the piano and my friend was singing with me and all that kind of stuff. And my music teacher had heard it at school and all the teachers had been asked for a student composition for the festival. And she put forward my song and it got chosen. And so my first public performance of a composition that I'd done was sung by sort of 500 kids in the Albert Hall with me playing that grand piano in the middle of the stage Wow! when I was 14. Oh, my word. Did you feel like, oh, this is something I could do as a career from that moment? I think it did. I was doing a lot of music. I was still probably dancing at that point, but I was, I'd switched over from sort of seven days of dancing to seven days of music. Uh, and I went to a Saturday music school, uh, Young Music Makers in North London, and then I did this these groups on a Sunday. So I was I was doing, you know, at school, orchestra and choir and jazz band and, you know, all the stuff. So the music department was really my home, especially as I think at that time, I was really struggling at school, just socially. You know, there was a lot of bullying and there was a lot of kind of horrible, horrible people. And that was my escape. So I wasn't particularly super social outside of music. And so doing that was very much, was probably a little stamp in my mind of like, ah, yeah, this could be something. This is, this is where you belong. Yeah, you found your tribe. I think yeah. it's the phrase, isn't it? So, you've played the Albert Hall at 14. <laughs> <laughs> Just casually. What happens then? So, it's about this time that I started taking jazz seriously. And I, again, through Camden, as well as doing the Camden Youth Jazz Band, which by this time was quite a senior band, and mm. I was surrounded by amazing young musicians. So, at school... You know, in my school, which is a huge school, I was very much in the sort of the handful of top students. I think that's fair to say. You know, I, I did all the stuff. I was very reliable. Uh, I was very good at sight reading. I was just that kid. And then I'd go to these outside workshops and was so lucky to be surrounded by amazing musicians of, you know, a couple of years older, my age and a couple of years younger. Mostly older, actually. Mostly a little bit older. But, you know, people like Pete Fraser who you probably know. I've heard the name, yes. Yeah, I don't he's, know he's um, a, a media composer and a saxophone player, lives in Sweden. And all these people who, like Marcus Bonfanti, who's a big-time blues musician, and his brother, oh. who's a producer, like all these kids, we were all kids in North London. And as well as doing the Sunday jazz, I started doing Saturday jazz with a pianist composer called Nikki O. And so I would have been 15, 16 at this point, and she was, again, very, very young. She's probably early 20s but force of nature and so much of the jazz that I did I was the only girl especially her workshops I was the, probably the only girl it was this group of boys so they weren't my friends I didn't have any friends that liked the music that I liked my friends were into you know loads of other stuff but not jazz not not what I was listening to and these boys they all had their you know they shared albums and they did extra stuff and so having first of all Kate Hennant as this big band leader and she was a, she's a jazz fl uh, flautist as well. And then Nikki O, who's this just force of nature jazz pianist, 
full of opinions, full of words of wisdom alongside music. Uh, and she connected us to the kind of jazz scene that's like uh, Mike and Martin Wondaisy and Jason Yard and all these incredible jazz musicians in London. And again, this was all inc- like heavily subsidized. It was not expensive. It was part of this giving back kind of mentality. And it was, I guess it, that that period was kind of life-changing for me um, mm. because their passion for music just came at you. Yeah. You know, their love for music. It sounds like you were in a position where you were learning to network as well. You had older kids, younger kids, so you're in a position where you're learning from people and passing it on as well. Um, yeah. And so, yes, you've finally honed that skill over the years. Yeah, it took me another, like, 15 years. So. It's amazing what inadvertently you take with you. Mm. It's not just the dots on the page, is it? Oh, definitely not. I mean, things that they imprint, that the tutors imprinted on us, were even things like don't talk on stage. Like, I remember them doing this whole little thing where they like the tutor band again these like Jason Yard and Nicky Yo and the Mondays Wilson they did like a fake performance and they did one where they were kind of nat when someone was soloing they'd have a little chat or like be messing with a read or stuff and they'd be like what's wrong with this scenario so it was a whole thing about respect it for, whether it's respect for the music respect for your fellow players respect on a personal level respect for yourself and your body you know it was a whole community and I think you're absolutely right about like learning from the older players. I was very often with a lot of older players. I think mainly because I was just a really good sight reader. So they could just like jump me up to a different, a higher group. Although I'll be honest, I was a good sight reader because when I was little, I never practiced. And I always told my teacher that I did. So I got really good <laughs> Ooh, at sight reading. I naughty. know, shocking, <laughs> shocking behavior. I didn't really practice properly, properly until I was about 16. Oh. I kind of just did a lot of playing and stuff. There's a balance to be struck, though, isn't there, for the enjoyment. You can over-practice, I think, <laughs> and become obsessed with it. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was a difference. I would get my flute or my saxophone out, or I had, you know, at one point I decided I was going to play the guitar when I was about 11, and then as soon as I had to learn a bar chord, I was like, oh, this is hard, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, <laughs> total slacker. Uh, <laughs> when I was, I was, I was 15- trying to defend you there, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I was just like, no, I can't, I'm not a guitarist. Luckily, I have Tom, who's an amazing guitarist, so I don't have to do yeah. that anymore. So I definitely was that kid who was like, I'm going to play this now. I, I had like a lesson on trumpet once, so I can slightly play the trumpet. Uh, I played clarinet. Oh, when I was 15, I decided when I was older, I was going to play in the BBC Big Band. I couldn't possibly tell you why, unless it might have been because my dad was really into big band music, and I probably discovered BBC Big Band through him. Hmm. We used to listen to it together. So I briefly flaunted. So I was like, oh, I need to play flute, clarinet and saxophone quick, but I'll learn it. <laughs> you know, but I, uh, again, I had the opportunity to do that because of the area in which I lived. And, you know, my parents yeah. were very, very, I'm mean, incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged in that way. So all these things have built up to a point where, at what point did you decide, I want to make music my life and to teach and compose and do all the things that you do? Probably 16, I think. I was really into film as well. My brother uh, my brother was a, he's an AD in Northern Ireland, oh, but he was in the UK at the time. So he's a, uh, and a script writer. So he was a writer, he's an AD. So I was very into the kind of world of film. And so it was kind of a toss up between those really. So I'd like chose my A-levels around that. So I did like media and music and English, but I kind of already decided, I think that I was gonna end up doing music. 
and I was it was just so much of my time it would have been pretty silly to not carry it on I think yeah. you know, it was my whole life as a teenager I'm asking each guest to leave an item that helped them in their music education and a piece of advice for any aspiring composers and musicians who might be listening so first of all what item would you like to leave in the music room this was a really hard one I was debating between sort of an album of works or a loads of studio footage or something but actually i'm gonna leave uh, a charlie parker omni book which is such a jazz nerd thing to do i'm sorry but for those who don't know what an omni book is <laughs> so charlie parker the incredible saxophonist someone's transcribed all of his tunes and solos wow and it's this scribbly scratchy like mine's totally falling apart book of all of these solos the hardest thing you've ever played but they are incredible for learning language, for learning harmony, for being getting good at reading. Like it's it's my go-to book for me personally when I'm like, dear God, I need to play. I'm sounding rubbish. I, that's what I would do. Wow. Because okay. the way that he spelled out harmony and spelled out changes is so so fascinating, and the technique that you need to be able to hit it all is so hard. And it's the same thing. It's the thing I get out with all my students when they get to a certain point I'm like right it's about great when they're kind of starting grade six so I definitely chuck them in the deep end but with the easiest one for me it's a it's just a game changer because I think a lot of that can be quite a scary world whether you're talking about improvising or learning harmony or any of these things but I guess similarly it's first time I thought about this similarly to how when I was in primary school and it was my teacher David Joyner was like there's no limits you're just going to do it with my students, so they're normally about 15, let's say. With my students, I don't want to give them sort of an easy jazz, i.e. classical jazz, uh, intro. I want to be like, do you know what? We can do this. It looks disgusting. Let's work it out. Which is something I say a lot because I'm always like, don't worry about it because it looks terrifying. But when they can play it, the confidence boost that they have yeah. is magnificent. I suppose it puts it into context as well, the theory of it and, the, you know, these different intervals and things. Absolutely, because you can just pick out little bits and go, oh, because it's got all the chords written above it. Yeah. You're like, oh, what's happening here? I'd never yeah. be like, explain to me the whole harmony. <laughs> I'd literally pick one bit and go, what's happening here? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm, let's play it again. You know, it's, it's like a surreptitious way of sneaking theory into a lesson. Um, or into their education while also actually they just really love playing it. I've never had a student yeah. that's been like, I hate this, this is horrible, which I do encourage. I encourage them to tell me if they don't like something. I'd rather yeah. they did that. But it's just really inspiring. And again, it's not sort of halfway jazz. It's a very, very in-your-face gateway. Fantastic. Charlie Parker's Omnibook going in the music room there. And what advice would you give to... Uh, aspiring composers and musicians that you could leave in the music room? My advice for aspiring composers and musicians is don't be afraid to be wrong. It took me a very long time to learn how to do that and it's invaluable and it's something I pass on to anybody that I teach is making the room a safe space to be wrong because once you're wrong you can unpick and that's how you learn. You don't learn by rote, you don't learn by someone saying do it this way. Okay, I'll do it this way. You know, when you're when you're learning an instrument, if I'm teaching, I will say, okay, what was the challenge in what you just played? And they'll be like, okay, the challenge for me is this bit. Okay, why? 
And as soon as you can articulate what you're struggling with, because you've done it wrong, whatever that means to you, if you can articulate it, you can fix it. That absolutely applies to composers as well. Don't be afraid to just chuck it all out and then chisel away like an old sculpture until you get to what you really wanted to say. But if you get stuck being afraid to take that step and be wrong, then you will never get to what you could mm. be as a composer and a musician. Yeah, they are now in the music room. And Data Call, you are now officially part of the music room alumni. And so thank you ever so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Mm.